So, brothers and sisters, our passage this morning begins with darkness. As we've worked our way through these final chapters of Matthew's Gospel together over these several weeks, you'll have noticed page by page the pace has been steadily slowing down. Paragraph by paragraph, the horror has begun to show itself. Plots to eliminate the best of men, a woman anointing him for burial, a partner in ministry deserting him for money, friends misunderstanding him and discouraging him. Sentence by sentence, a favourite place is ruined by needless loneliness, by gut-wrenching trauma. His reputation is destroyed, his achievements undermined, his legacy cut off at the knees. Three times even his boldest disciple denies him. Word by word, fear, ambition, suicide, cruelty, despair, impalement, scorn, agony, shame, casting lots. And finally, we come to this, darkness. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. It's only if we see this slowing down of time that we begin to really appreciate what Matthew is actually describing here. By the time we reach the cross itself, events are playing out before our eyes, breath by ragged breath, from noon until three in the afternoon. Can you imagine it? Breath by ragged breath. Matthew wants us to understand that this is torture, and it isn't easy for us to hear it. All of us hope to avoid a painful death, don't we? All of us hope that we'll be old and happy and uh, ready to go one day, and then it will just happen in the blink of an eye. But Matthew wants us to know that that's not what happened to Jesus. Already flogged, already beaten, Jesus hung on a cross under a black sky for three hours. This is what he'd anticipated in the garden the night before. This is what had caused him to beg that the cup might be taken from him. This was separation from God. The pathos of this is captured in his cry from the cross. These are the only words of Jesus that Matthew records during this whole sequence of events. So presumably, they're very important. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's unthinkable, isn't it? Given what we know of the Jesus in the Gospels, how could this ever follow that? How could such a good man, such a kind man, such a wise man, a man who seemed to have such a bottomless ability to make the wrong things right, how could he end up here? Jesus' life was marked by the most beautiful, effortless nearness to God. It's the thing that draws us to him. Isn't it the thing that all of us know we most badly need when we really think about it? And yet before anybody else seems to have even really understood him properly, before anybody seems to have really got it, it's gone. Jesus' life of intimate relationship with the Father is brutally ended. And what's going on with this response of the crowd? 
Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're expecting perhaps gasps of horror, taunts of told you so. But what we actually get is this strange episode about calling Elijah. A bystander runs off to get a sponge soaked in vinegar and offers it to Jesus on a stick. And then the others say, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. What's happening here is connected to the death of Elijah in the Old Testament. I wonder whether anyone here uh, remembers what's odd about Elijah's death in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, the odd thing about Elijah's death is that he doesn't die. He's taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And in Jewish folklore in the first century, people thought that Elijah was still in this same business of translating righteous people to heaven immediately when they were punished unjustly. That's what the crowd are hoping to see here. You know, if Jesus was really who he'd said he was, or if he'd, who he'd seemed to be, something spectacular might be about to happen here. You know, Elijah reappearing would be something to tell the grandchildren about if you really saw it. That's what this sponge and vinegar are all about, I'm afraid. Just an attempt to keep Jesus alive long enough for the fiery chariot to get its act together and come. But for all their supposed knowledge of their own story, for all their supposed ability to discern God's intentions in this horrific spectacle, the reality is that the people standing here before the cross are a disgrace to the name of humanity, don't you think? They stand in the very presence of death and existential darkness, content to speculate about Elijah and the finer points of the role that God assigned to him. But God himself is completely unknown to them. God made human beings in his image to know him intimately and to bless their neighbours. But here, humans are cursing their neighbour, killing their neighbour, and they're so far removed from God that they don't even recognise his name. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. The Eli there has nothing to do with Elijah. It's just the Aramaic word for the name of God, shouted out in the most desperate and poignant way. Can it really be that these people didn't recognize that? Had they never spoken that word for themselves? Their cleverness at the foot of the cross, I'm afraid, tells a story of absolutely abject spiritual bankruptcy. Though claiming to be wise, they'd become fools, as Paul says about all of us in Romans. At the moment when their God gave himself up to death for them, these people didn't even know what he was called. Among the witnesses, we also have several women, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. In verse 55, if you look down there, you'll see Matthew tells us they followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. So at least there was love here and some measure of understanding in this place of horror. But that makes this part of the story even harder to read, don't you think? Because a tragic death is bad enough, but it's worse still when it's witnessed by people the victim loves. Ruth and I know a poor lady who went up looking for her husband when he didn't come home late one night and found herself driving right up to the roadblock the police had set up around the fatal pile-up that it claims his life. There are some things that those who love should never have to see. I don't want to even imagine what this was like for Mary Magdalene. Jesus had completely changed her life. Despised by her society as a moral pariah, she'd found a safe place 
and a new start with this man now dying on the cross. Imagine how secure she'd felt with the protection of his voice always near at hand. Don't give her a hard time about that. It's history. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who think they don't need to. Who's going to believe in her now? If you had to place a caption over this scene, I think you might just say, too late. The declaration of the centurion is wonderful, isn't it? And rightly famous. But too late. His squad of soldiers had driven the nails through Jesus' wrists. They physically lifted him up on the, lifted him up on the cross and dropped it into its socket in the ground with a sickening thud. They stood there in the darkness doing their duty because Roman soldiers are drilled to do their duty whatever else happens under attack, under distraction, now under the seeming onset of the end of the world. Reliably repeating their drill, no questions asked, waiting out the years of their service in the hope that thinking for themselves would be something they could do someday in the distant future. They waited at the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. And only when it was too late did they realise what their hands had done. Surely he was the Son of God. Too late to do for Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew calls him a rich man, a disciple of Jesus, it seems, with access to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate himself. But it's only after Jesus' death that he steps into the limelight to take charge of the body. Where was Joseph at Jesus' trial? There's no mention of him. If there was any good he could have done, he didn't do it. It was only after Jesus' death that the weight of what he owed him and his sense of sorrow and loss drove him out into the public sphere to confess him as master and take care that he was properly buried. You hear sometimes about army units who fight through fire and water to recover the bodies of their fallen comrades. We can feel a similar sense of love and obligation in Joseph's actions here, can't we? It's utterly reckless. His hopes for reputation and advancement are all forfeit now as he aligns himself at last with this Jesus, this public enemy, number one. But it's also utterly hopeless, isn't it? Because it's too late. The time to do something for Jesus has passed. He's gone. This is what the witnesses to this event saw. At the foot of the cross... In the corridors of power in Jerusalem and Caesarea, in the sceptical synagogues and debating halls of first century Asia Minor and Greece, as the story of Jesus was retold from city to city, and in the heavenly realms, perhaps, where principalities and power view our world with hungry eyes. If there ever had been such a thing as God's plan, here it lay in tatters. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And this is still what many people see. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Three hours is a long time for the sun to go dark, especially when there are things to do that require the light. Back down the hill in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus died, you might know there was quite a lot going on. It was the Passover. And Jews, not just from Judea, but from Jewish communities all around the Mediterranean, had congregated in the city to sacrifice. The closest thing, I guess, we have 
to this in the modern world is the annual Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. We've probably all seen images of that on the news. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that about two and a half million people descended on Jerusalem every year for the Passover, climaxing in the sacrifice of about 250,000 lambs in a single day. His figures may be an exaggeration, but even if they are, we're still talking about gigantic numbers. And so throughout these hours of darkness, while Jesus was dying, the priests in the temple were working with torches in hand, probably wondering what in the world was happening, offering thousands of innocent animals to God in the place of sinful people. So it's striking, isn't it? The collision of these two events, the colossal sacrifice of innocent victims in the city, and the colossal sacrifice of the man on the cross. It suggests some kind of connection between them, not just in terms of their outward form, but in terms of their underlying purpose yet. And the darkness itself needs an explanation as well, doesn't it? We associate it rightly with the death of Jesus, with the brutality of his executioners, with the callous ghoulishness of the crowd. But none of those things actually stop the sun shining. Sadly, life is often brutal and callous, but the sun keeps shining even when it feels like it shouldn't. Think back with me to where that stubborn reliability of the sun begins. The very first words of God recorded in our Bibles deal with it. In Genesis 1 verse 3, God speaks into the black chaos, let there be light. And these words raise the curtain on the whole story of creation. Let there be water, let there be land, let there be creatures in the sky and on the earth. Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. The lights come up and at the heart of this great production, God leads men and women out onto the stage as his ambassadors, as his friends, as his children. What an extraordinary privilege. And what an extraordinarily shameful fall it is then when men and women tell God that they want to take his place. That there be light is the beginning of creation. Eating the fruit is the beginning of decreation. God won't share his world or any of its blessings with people who would rather make a world than blessings for themselves. Let there be light as a gift to those who want to know the one who made the light in the end. And so if nothing changes, our world will end in darkness. For from darkness we came, to darkness we will surely return. Unless, that is, darkness is somehow drawn out of its proper place at the end of the story and defeated in the story itself. Unless the darkness meets its match, unless its claim on us is somehow satisfied. From the cross, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not less than a cry of anguish, a testimony to the reality of his abandonment by God, but is that all it is? In Israel in the first century, and for centuries before that, Jewish literacy was formed almost exclusively within the boundaries of the Old Testament. Our children are exposed to an extraordinary diversity of literature, aren't they, in their upbringing? Modern children's books, classic tales, stories from other countries, 
set texts for exams from different examples that vary from year. Every school is different. And with all this variety, it's hard to think of any book that everybody knows, except perhaps Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. But in the Jewish culture that Jesus lived in, everybody knew that the Hebrew Bible, sorry, everyone knew the text of the Hebrew Bible and little beyond that. Beginner's reading maybe would be an easy passage from Deuteronomy or Jonah. More advanced readers might tackle the Psalms or Job. The text was in their ears and on their lips, Sabbath by Sabbath. It wasn't uncommon for Jewish adults to have the whole thing down by memory. And this creates the context for a phenomenon that Jews call remez. The expectation that by quoting just a small segment of a text, maybe just a fragment of a, of a verse, that the audience will recall not just that text itself, but also the whole context, the whole setting in which it originally appears. Now that might sound a bit far-fetched to us, but let me see if I can prove to you that our minds are still capable of working in the same way. What if I say to you, you shall not pass? <laughs> what synapses does that trigger in your minds? I hope that at least for some of you, that short phrase brings you here. <laughs> to a bridge, to a fellowship about to be broken, and to a whole wealth of other images that come before and after it, to the sense of safety that the group of people felt with this character is about to fall, and to the sense of hopelessness and inadequacy that's about to claim them now that he's gone. I hope it brings back snatches of a soundtrack, maybe, images of woods and elves and rivers and the terrible separation, but perhaps also a sense that all is not quite as lost as it seems, if you know the story really well. This is the Lord of the Rings. But more to the point, this is the power of Remez. Just a few words. You shall not pass can open the door back into the whole surrounding context if you're familiar with it. So let's go back now to this cry from the cross. Eli, Eli, Lemma, Sabachthani. We may or may not know it, but this is the daddy of all biblical examples of this phenomenon, Remez. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Do you recognize it? This is Psalm 22. Arguably the single most important messianic psalm in the whole Bible. And with a single memorable line, Jesus has taken us here. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since delights in him. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joy. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's head, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Does that sound familiar to us? 
Sure, this is David writing in 50 BC or around that, pouring out his heart to God in response to one of the shocking lows that he endured as Israel's anointed king. We don't know exactly when it was or what circumstances there were that provoked him to write this way. But in the blitz of God, he wasn't just speaking for himself or for his own time. This is a description of the cross. A full millennium before it actually happened, God was preparing the ground for the moment that we read about today. And with that in mind, it's very important how the psalm continues. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. To me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before, you who f- before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and they will proclaim his righteous declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Did you hear that? The king, forsaken, betrayed, surrounded, pierced, stripped, this king will declare the praises of God in great assembly before his story is finished. His suffering will not be despised or scorned by God. This king will receive the worship of the families of the nations. Posterity will serve him. Few generations will be told about him. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This king dared single combat with the entire consequences of human sin. This, case, this king faced the darkness and destroyed it. This king has done it and it is finished. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Brothers and sisters, this is no panic-stricken cry of desperation from the cross. Don't underestimate the profundity of Jesus' words. Yes, he was separated utterly from God because it was our destiny. He drew our punishment out from its proper place at the end of the story and in the story in Jerusalem at Passover as the lambs were being slaughtered in the temple He showed us what that ritual pointed to right from the start. God bore the consequences of our rejection of God. God absorbed and exhausted the wrath of God. God died that we might live. Satan may have brought Jesus down to the very depths of suffering and despair on the cross, but there was a deeper magic at work here. 
the vast and ancient machinery of salvation is actually turning before our eyes here. We spoke earlier on about the fall, about Adam and Eve's attempt to take God's place and their exclusion from the wonderful home that he had made for them. You might remember how that story goes. God comes looking for his children in the garden, but they're hiding. The intimacy is gone. The trust is gone. The sense of being comfortable in their own skins, it's gone. And God excludes them from the Garden of Eden because it isn't a safe place for them to be anymore. This place that they were made for, in which they were designed to flourish, is a place that recognises them as enemies now. And so God bars way back into Eden, gigantic cherubim with flaming swords, stand guard at the entrance, and the story of humans living in a broken world, our story, begins. It's interesting to follow that word cherubim through your Bible if you ever get the chance. The next time it crops up is in the story of the Exodus. You might remember how God freed the Israelites from Egypt and led them out into the desert to worship him first on a mountain and later in a tent called the tabernacle. God gave his people a detailed description of how to build it. Its innermost room was the place where God would dwell and it was to be divided from the rest of the tent by a curtain into which the Israelites were to weave cherubim with flaming swords. Do you see the purpose of the image? The place where God is, is Eden. The place where we were designed to be. But humans dare not enter it anymore on the death. Keep coming through your Bible and the next place you're going to touch down looking for cherubim is 2 Chronicles chapter 3 in a passage that describes the Temple of Solomon. Here again there was an inner room, a holy of holies, where God thought to dwell and inside it two gigantic cherubim, each with a 10 metre wingspan, were uh, placed and then dividing that room from the rest of the building there was once again a vast curtain embroidered with cherubim with flame swords barring the way back to Eden. A thousand years has passed since the consecration of Solomon's temple by the time we reach the events of Matthew 27. The building was burned to the ground by the Babylonians in 587 BC, one of the great national tragedies of the Jewish story. But by Jesus' time, a new temple stood on the same site, this one built by Herod the Great. This is where the Passover lambs were being sacrificed on this first Good Friday on such an enormous scale. And like its predecessors, it too had a Holy of Holies and it too had a temple curtain. And I guess I don't need to tell you what it looked like. 60 feet high and four inches thick and embroidered with cherubim, barring the way back into Eden, back into the place where we were made to be that our forefathers lost, the place where God himself dwells. So why does it matter that the temple curtain tore when Jesus died? It isn't just that it marks the end of priestly privileges or that it opens the path for anyone or everyone to enter. It matters because it tells us that the fundamental situation of humanity ever since the Garden of Eden has been utterly and irrevocably changed in this moment. We were born outsiders, exiles, from God, still with the scent of the place that we were made for in our nostrils, but destined never to enjoy it. We were born out of place, 
as people who no longer belong in the only situation where we would ever find rest, that exclusion is the root of our brokenness. That exclusion is the root of our hopelessness and self-destructiveness. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took it in his hands and tore it to shreds. And now the way back to Eden stands open for us. The fundamental existential problem of the human condition was utterly annihilated in this moment. God came out from his space into our space and won us back. The breaking open of the tombs makes the same point, doesn't it, in this story. Resurrection was what the Jews expected on the day that God would come back to reign. Death was a mark of life outside Eden. Life was a mark of Eden restored. Sure, very few of them realised that God himself planned to die to make this happen. But resurrection in their minds could mean only this one thing. This is why everything changed for Paul when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Because Jesus was supposed to be dead. If he had really risen, all bets were off. The rules had changed. God was back in the game in the most dramatic way possible. So the most appropriate caption for this scene is too late. Says who? The women standing as witnesses to the horror of Jesus' execution would stand as witnesses to his resurrection three days later. And in the process, they would find their places as daughters and ambassadors of the King of Kings in a world that told them that their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. These women might be you this morning. Broken, disappointed, robbed of your joy, robbed of your confidence, robbed of your chance to make a contribution. Is it too late? Only if you haven't grasped what Jesus is actually achieving here. The centurion and his men make their hopeless confession. They realise that they've just killed the Son of God. And yet in the strange and wonderful providence of God, they become a living message of hope to the nations that the Jews had done such a great job of excluding from his plans. These guys were Roman soldiers, hated, coercive, morally unresponsive. And yet these are the people in whom the death of Jesus first awakened faith. Isn't that amazing? Too late? Must have seemed like that until three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. Until 40 days later when this message of life for any and for all who believed brought 3,000 people into the church in a single day. Until Cornelius, the Roman centurion, was converted in Acts 10. Until churches started springing up throughout the Roman Empire and even Rome itself. These soldiers might be you this morning. Guilty, tainted, cold in your conscience, a creature of the system, doing what must be done, not what should be done. Is it too late? Only if you haven't grasped what Jesus is actually achieving here. And what about Joseph, the rich man? That expression only shows up in one other passage in Matthew's Gospel. I'm sure you know it. In chapter 19, truly I tell you it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And it must have seemed like that to Joseph himself, right? Was it his riches or the fear of losing them that made him leave it till the very end to show himself as a disciple of Jesus? 
Only after all hope was gone and his mistake was unrectifiable did he do anything about it and bury Jesus in his own tomb. And that might be you too this morning. Have you had chances to respond to Jesus before and bottled it? Have you failed to be known as one of his followers? Too late is the message that Satan wants you to hear. But sad for him, he didn't see the deeper magic coming. Shorn of all self-confidence, Joseph let Jesus take the place he prepared for himself in death. And that was exactly what he needed to do to live. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we need to do to live too. We need to bury Jesus in our own tombs. Because Jesus died the death that should have put us in them. And if his body has taken our place, we will rise. The moment creation had waited for from the dawn of time actually happens in front of our eyes in this text. Jesus gave up his spirit to darkness and in dying, one light and life for everyone who trusts in him, even if it seems too late. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts are at a loss to know how to respond to what it is that you undertook to do and achieved in this moment. We are so profoundly sorry for the weight of sin and stupidity and selfishness which put you there. We are so profoundly amazed and grateful that you would do this and in doing it save us from the very sin that made it happen. Help us to bury you in our own tombs, knowing that if you are buried where we should be, we will rise as you yourself rose. In Jesus' name, amen.